And I, I, I said at the beginning of the service um, about the announcement uh, for the Welcome Back Cooknet, Welcome Back Picnic. Uh, to contact Lisa Beckman, I said Lisa wasn't here because I thought she was in Chapel Hill dropping her daughter off at college. She is here. Sorry to put you on the spot. Here she is. If you'd like to help out, come see her after the service. Um, glad you're here. Matt, you too. So. Um, as you've noticed, uh, hopefully, uh, our, our service this, this morning has been directed at God's Word, and I just want to recall before I read our scriptures what we sang at the beginning of this service and how firm a foundation, that first line, how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What a wonderful, wonderful line there. Um, our question as we continue along in our August series is, Scripture, how do we interpret it? So that's the question that was asked and presented, and that, that's the question we're after this morning. And so with that, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word as found in those texts. They're printed on your bulletin um, and on page 8. You can follow along or just listen. Beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 12. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn uh, to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. And then flipping over to chapter 32, verse 45. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Moving to Psalm 119, verse 34. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart heart. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask this morning, as we often do, that you would do a miracle, and by miracle that you would soften hardened hearts that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we may graciously respond to your truth, that we may know you. Would you do this for your glory alone? Amen. So scripture, how do I interpret it? And whether you have grown up in the church or around the church or, 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 or not in the church at all, um, most of us are familiar with the Bible and have opinions about the Bible, but I think all of us at some point in time in our lives would agree that uh, we have questions about the Bible, especially um, how do we understand it? How do we trust it? Maybe others are more skeptical of that, even as a Christian, still have skeptical thoughts about trusting the Bible and, and can I really know what it has to say? And I think it's important before we begin looking at uh, how we can interpret the Bible, just sort of unpacking a little bit of, of those reasons that we might have doubt or we might be skeptical about whether or not the Bible can truly be understood or, or just reasons why we find the Bible difficult in the first place. 
First, I'd suggest that one of the reasons we uh, might find ourselves questioning uh, the Bible at times uh, is that it's old. It's old. The Bible is old. I don't care who you are. There is a bit of skepticism in our culture about old things. Not necessarily old people, but old things, like referring to history. Um, the Bible spans the time, at least with its recorded uh, individuals, uh, of about 5,000 years. It's a lot of time, and a lot can happen within that time. This is what I mean by it being old. For some of us, it's just hard to trust that what was put down or written or recorded has carried its way this far to 2023 and that it is then trustworthy and able to be accessed and known. Second, though, uh, we know or we, the church believes that human beings wrote the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course, but it was, it was written down by human beings, mostly men. And for some of, the, for some of us, uh, one or both of those are reasons, reasons enough to doubt or have skepticism about Scripture and whether it can be understood or known. I mean, have you ever played the game um, a Telephone? And I'm referring now not, not necessarily you know, just, just a human error in general as we understand uh, how the Bible has come to us. But you're familiar with the game Telephone, where nine or ten of you sit in a, sit in a line, and then somebody on, on one end uh, whispers a sentence to the next person, and it's supposed to get, you know, you wait till it gets all the way to the end, and hopefully it's the same thing, but it never is. And this always frustrated me as a kid, because I, like, how hard is it just, to, just to, 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 to say, Peter Pan does not like peanut butter, and just pass that along? Why can't we do this? It always frustrated me as a kid. Years later, I realized uh, maybe people are doing this on purpose. This is the fun of the game. Joke's on me. However, we, uh, we, know, we know ourselves. We know human errors involved in a lot of things. How can we possibly trust, right, that human beings who, who, who have written this stuff down, um, how can we trust that what they have written down is true and what God actually told them to write down, which is another conversation for another day. Thirdly, the Bible has been used to do terrible things in history, like support slavery, especially slavery in our country. Many uh, Christians use the Bible to support this, to justify this act. Now, not all of them, but many did. We can look at any generation in history and look at the misuse of the Bible. We could go back to the Spanish Inquisition of the 15th and 19th century and its misuse of Scripture. We can go further back to that, to the Crusades, uh, a, a massive blemish on the history of the Christian church, all because of someone's definition or understanding of what Scripture thought that this is what we were supposed to be doing as a church. But I get it. The misuse of Scripture leads many to doubt, how can somebody, on one hand, read it and understand that, it, that the Bible is clearly against something as awful as slavery, yet others, on the other hand, come to a completely different conclusion? And this creates doubts for us. Fourth, we might think that the Bible is at odds at times with science or what we know about the world that we live in. Consider our friend Nicholas Copernicus of the 15th and 16th century who had the audacity to say that the earth was heliocentric or that the earth revolved around the sun as opposed to the sun, what, revolving around the earth. At the time, this was at odds 
with the Catholic teaching, with Catholic Church. However, I will add the Protestants were in favor of his teaching. I digress. Nevertheless, the church historical has been, at times, on the wrong side of scientific findings and understandings of this world. Ask a room full of Christians who created the world, and you'll get the same answer God did. But how and what did that look like? And what can we know about that? And you'll get different answers about that question. In other words, though, there are things that we have attempted, perhaps, to even allow the Bible to explain that, that, that maybe we shouldn't, and we'll get into that in a second, but nevertheless, that has caused the Bible to be at odds with things that we know about this world for others, and that creates doubt, that creates skepticism, that creates uncertainty about whether or not the Bible can be interpreted correctly or known. Lastly, and I'll just use this as sort of a coverall for all of us, the Bible is just difficult to read and understand, and it is. Um, what you learn when you go to seminary is that you don't know anything, right? You go to seminary thinking, I'm going to learn the Bible. And then you realize how much of the Bible you don't know, and you probably won't, because its depths cannot be explored. But just to sit down and open your Bible and to read it, there are some places there that are easier to understand, for sure, and there are some places in the text in the Bible that are just difficult. There are cultural differences, right? We understand the Bible to be written at a time when, when, when the culture was different than what it is today, and that creates distance. Um, we have our own biases, right? This is another big thing. How, how am I able to pick up any document, let alone the Bible, and not read my own biases into the text? Whether that's political, uh, cultural, socioeconomic, anything. This is what makes reading the Bible difficult. And why agreement on what the Bible says about everything is often challenging and not found to be where there are disagreements about what the Bible says about certain things. Now, we could go on. Um, if I didn't touch on your particular reason why you doubt it or are skeptical about it, I would actually like to know what that is. Send me an email. We'd love to know what that is. But what do we do with this? How do we grow in our confidence that Scripture is trustworthy and that we can read it and understand it? How do we trust a document this old, recorded by human beings at that, who are prone to error? How do we push back on our skepticism when we see the ways that the Bible has been used to justify horrific things against humanity in our culture. Well, as Dr. Jack Collins said often to Ada and I as seminary students, one of our favorite professors, misuse does not negate proper use. Misuse does not negate proper use. In other words, just because one person uses something in a way that is perhaps harmful to others or in a way that, that something may not be designed to be used, that doesn't mean we just throw up our hands and discredit the validity of it all together. Just because I like to use a screwdriver to hammer in nails and then throw away my screwdriver because it's clearly useless doesn't mean we should do that. We should rather find the proper use of screwdrivers and understand that they can be trustworthy 
when used for their intent. Which often means putting in more work than we might actually admit that we need to do when it comes to understanding the Bible, which is, what is at the heart of biblical interpretation. I think some of us just think, why should it be this hard? Why can't God just sort of hook me up to something and just let me know everything that I need to know? But then again, if this is God's word, and I believe that it is, referring to the Bible, then we should not only give it our best effort, but we should value it as the treasure that it is, which means taking the Bible on its own terms and not our own. And that's really the one thing among many that we're going to hear, but the one thing that I want us to walk away with as we think about biblical interpretation to take the Bible on its own terms as it has been written and given to us in our attempts to understand it and know it. So I want to look at two questions with our time. I want to look at at why the Bible must be interpreted, and then I want to look at how the Bible is interpreted. So the why and then the how, all right? Let's take the why. Why the Bible must be interpreted. This may be a funny question to many of you, but kind of thought about it for a while, and I don't know that I've heard anybody talk about why. We often talk about how, which we'll get to, get some of those tools, right, some of those ways that we process the Bible. But why does this need to be interpreted, right? For some of us, and I grew up in a, in a, in a community that would probably lean more this way, for some of us, we just think, you know what, we believe in God, we believe in the Bible, and he's just going to tell me whatever I need to know. And, I, and, and this sort of produces this, like, I don't really need to, 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 to work at this or study this. I'll read my Bible every once in a while. Um, but he's going to tell me what I need to know. And some of that is true, especially as we, we talk about the illumination of Scripture, which, which is the, the understanding that, that I can read the Bible and, and understand it as a book, but for my heart to be changed by it, the Holy Spirit has to open my eyes and my ears to that to change my heart. But when we come to the text with this idea that, you know, I really don't need to work at this. And maybe this also feeds into some of our skepticism about scholarship behind the Bible— We actually miss something that's very important, which is why the Bible should be interpreted to begin with. And the first reason the Bible should be interpreted is is because God has spoken. God has spoken. Now that is a loaded statement, whether you are aware of it or not. First, it assumes God exists. Second, it assumes that he has attempted to communicate to somebody or a communicated at all, if that's even possible. But thirdly, it it assumes that he wants to communicate to a specific audience, to his church, to Christians, to you. Now, for our time, we'll assume that this is true. Because he has spoken, this means, though, that there is an author, and it means that there is an audience as well. That is, the author isn't just speaking into sort of space with with no clear intention or object in which this person is speaking. No, we call this authorial intent. This is what happens, hopefully, when you leave here and go to lunch or go, go wherever you go and you have a dialogue with somebody Hopefully, you have a, a, an intent behind what you're actually saying, a purpose, a reason for the things that you are saying. Now, sometimes when I get in the conversation with my kids, I wonder that. Right? Is there a point to this story? But why the Bible must be interpreted, don't overlook the simplicity of this. It's because God has spoken. He has said something. 
He has given us words and sentences and paragraphs, and he has intent, and he has commanded us, his people, to think about this, to know it, to learn it, to wrestle with it, to meditate on it, the very things that he has spoken. And this draws us back to our text this morning in Deuteronomy 31, 12. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and to be careful to do all the words of this law. 2 Timothy 2, 7, think over what I say. And that's, that's going to fit together with the second part of that verse, for the Lord will give you understanding, but there's both of those things. At play. And I am honing in on the think part, which is the work of interpretation. Right? God has not just said, sit back and I will put all the thoughts into your head and you won't have to do anything. No, he has commanded these things. These are imperatives to his people to think, to read upon his words. And this implies, among other things, a need to interpret, to understand. And why? Because he has spoken. Westminster Confession, chapter 1, section 4, is very clear about this. It says, The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed and dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, the author thereof. And therefore, it is to be received because it is the Word of God. God has spoken. And this means we must interpret the things that he has to say. And I'll argue later that that is actually part of a, a relational component that he wants with us. Right? But what, what purpose? Right? Why has God spoken? And I, I want to hit this before we get out of this point and get to the stuff y'all really want to know about the how. If you, don't, if you don't get this part, though, the how won't mean anything to you. Right? Why has he spoken? And this is the best part. He's spoken because he wants you to know him. Let me say this again. He has spoken because he wants you to know him. If we go back to Deuteronomy, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord. We're familiar with this, this word fear. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are, they're scared of God. It's more of a reverence. But you cannot fear someone or something that you don't know that person or know that that entity. We know from Proverbs 1 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. J.I. Packer has made a living or made a living on this entire premise in his timeless work, which I commend to you, knowing God. Right? The Reformation, the basis of all theology. But the Reformation set forth was, was not just to be puffed up with knowledge or to have a profession. It was towards the end of knowing God. Calvin and in his institutes, all four books, he leaves the first book entirely devoted to the understanding and the idea of knowing God and its importance. And its first two chapters with the premise of the only way that we know ourselves is if we know God. But we can't know God if we don't know God. We don't know ourselves. And we can't know God unless what he speaks. He says something to us. And this is what's so unique and special about Christianity. And dare I say, Reformed theology. <clears throat> Over, over the years, that we actually believe 
that God has a message that he has spoken to us and he has intent. And then that, that is what, what, what is at the heart of interpretation of what we are trying to know. And at the heart of that is that he is, his desire is that we know who he is. And the reason why this, I start here, and this is so important before we get to the latter, is that this changes the question of interpretation. And it changes the question of interpretation to not can we really know, but is God good enough to make himself, his message, knowable at all? Dare I say this, go so far as to say, is God competent enough to communicate his message to us? And see, this actually highlights for me the real dilemma if we go back to the beginning of all of the reasons why we have doubts or skepticism. The, the, the issue with interpretation and the issue with the Bible and all the things we might say about it is not a God problem. It is a human problem. It is a you and a me problem. It is a sin problem. The problem is not with God in Scripture and his ability to communicate with us. And we'll prove that here in a second. The problem is with us. It is, it is, are we the ones taking Scripture on our terms and not His? Are we wanting to use it for our own means and our own interests and our own, right, quick, um, you know, encouragements and inspirations? Or are we humbling ourselves and approaching the text in a way that says, this is something that God has spoken and has given with, with intent to his audience. Uh, that can be Israel at times. That can be the church at times. But all of, it, all of it applies in some way to me. But am I doing the work of taking it on his terms and understanding that the purpose of that is not just so that we can discover wonderful, cool things about theology or about God or Christianity, although there's, there is that. It's that at the heart of this, it's that he, the creator and sustainer of this world, wants to know you. If we do that, if we take the Bible on its own terms and not our own and what we'll find is that the Bible is not only accessible, but it is extremely clear as to what it's about. Leading us now to the tools of interpretation and how we should think about interpretation. So let's turn there now. I want to look at six tools for interpretation. There are more, okay? Um, you can go to school and spend years understanding other tools for interpretation, and it's really helpful, and we need people to do that. But I believe, like, I believe that these six things that I'm about to present to you <clears throat> um, are the basic foundation for how all of us understand Scripture. And whether you go on to get PhDs and all that stuff, great. We need people to do that. We need people to argue over the ands in Romans 12, 14 to oblivion, right? We, we need you to do that. But you don't need to do that in order to understand the primary message of Scripture. Okay? And I want to convince you of that with the time that we have left so that you can know that as you read your Bible, and even in the ways that we teach you to read the Bible, that you can trust it. 
and you can know what it has to say. Okay, so six things. Um, let's go through these relatively quickly. Uh, the first one, the Bible has a primary message. All right, the Bible has a primary message. If God has spoken and he has, and we are his audience, right, we are, then God has spoken with intent, as I've said, which means that he has a specific and a primary message for us. And because this is true, the first rule of interpretation is to focus on that primary message. And what is that primary message? What is the intent of God primarily in all of Scripture? And I would say simply, it's redemption. It's redemption. This means the primary message is not creation, although the Bible speaks to it. The primary message is not how do you change the oil in your car or how to bake bread. There are some things about baking bread and you can try to go to the Bible for that, but we all know that, that that's not the primary message. The primary message is redemption. But actually, let's go, let's go further and let's read what the Westminster Confession of Faith has to say. This is moving over to section, section six of chapter one. We're gonna be in here a little bit today. This is great. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, it is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Okay? The Bible has a primary message. And whenever we are addressing Scripture, this, this should be the first thing that comes up. That what it wants to talk about, and this gets back to the theme of, are we taking Scripture on its own terms? What it wants to talk about primarily is redemption, salvation, or as our confession states, God's glory, salvation, faith, and life. All right, that's the first thing. Second, the Bible is clear in this primary message. What the divines are saying and concluding is that there is a primary message and that primary message is what expressly set down or able to be deduced by anyone. The church has often called this the perspicuity of Scripture, a lovely word for you to put in your pocket for lunch later today. The perspicuity of Scripture, which means that the Bible is clear in its primary message. Moving to the next section in our Westminster Confession, says all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. I appreciate that sentence. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Now, this is extremely important and should be of immense encouragement as you wrestle with any questions about Scripture, let alone interpretation as you read it. And again, as I said, I, I love that the Confession acknowledges first that not all Scripture is plain and alike clear at all. It, it's not. There are, there are places that we still don't know exactly what this is saying. But as it pertains to the primary message... There's no question. There's no question. We, we may be in a, a doctrine, doctrinate program, nothing against this, you know, those who get their PhDs, arguing whether or not uh, the, the, the table in the parable of the sower or whatever it is was blue versus red. Great. We need to do that. 
It is not putting at odds or putting into question the primary clear message of Scripture, which can be deduced or learned by those who have those degrees or those who don't. However, it is also acknowledging that, yes, there are some things that are clearer than others, which speaks to the challenges of Scripture. We read certain books, and, and it just comes off the page to us. And other things, man, this is, doesn't make any sense. But as it pertains to its primary message of salvation and redemption, it is clear. And you can thank God for that. You can thank God for that. When we hear of, of scholars arguing over the Bible or the biblical texts, or whether Paul was in Rome when he wrote this letter, those things, how important they are, they never put into jeopardy God's primary message to you. And you need to know that. So the, primary, so the Bible has a primary message, and we should begin with it first when dealing with a text in Scripture. Second, that primary message uh, is clear according to the church, according to those who have studied the Bible the most, and hopefully according to you as you have been and around the church and the Bible and read it yourself. It is clear for any and all to know. No secrets, no special knowledge, uh, no secret uh, understanding of how to unlock the text by um, taking every third and fourth word. Uh, I don't know. Just It's not like a decoder that you'd get out of a box of cereal. That's not what the Bible requires. God in his wisdom has given you something that is easy to understand. Thirdly, the Bible is a book, and it should be treated as such. This means that the Bible wants to be received as one story, which implies unity from beginning to end. So when you're thinking about biblical interpretation, when you're reading it, I want you to have these things in mind, that it is a book. The Bible isn't to be treated as a fortune cookie, where you pull out a verse at will and simply apply any meaning to it that you wish. Instead, like most books, or how we would treat most books and stories, there is context. There's a context to every verse. There's a context to every chapter. There's a context to every book of the Bible that fits together to support what? Guess what? The primary message. And so one of the things you need to remember and recall is context is king. Context is king when I'm doing my biblical reading and interpretation. Seek to know and to understand the context of the book you are reading, the context of the passage you are reading by looking at what the author wrote just before, after, but also what testament am I in? Is this a historical book? Is this, is this what, you know, what, where am I? And remember to ask, what role does this book or text have to do with God's glory, his redemption, faith? Life, the primary things that God has spoken about. Fourthly, as a book, ordinary rules of literature should apply. And this one may be more familiar to you. It wasn't familiar to me growing up. This wasn't taught. But ordinary rules of literature should apply. Again, this is to say that we must take God's word on his terms, not our own. And this means that that paying attention to various literary styles, specifically what we call genre, is how we begin to take God on his own terms. And this is perhaps the most overlooked aspect of biblical interpretation. The Bible as a whole has some five to seven different major genre styles of writing. For example, the Bible has historical narrative, didactic prose, it has poetry, apocalyptic literature, 
There's sometimes in places where there's combination of, of narrative and poetry. And to just sort of ignore that and say, I'm going to take the Bible up and read it, and I'm just going to let it say whatever it wants to say, is the process of what? Taking the Bible on your own terms. If we're going to be good stewards of Scripture we, and, and take the Bible on God's terms, then we have to pay attention to the way that God decided to write. This means that when the author chooses to write in a poetic form, their intent or intention wasn't for you to read it like an encyclopedia and to take it, as we might say, woodenly, literally. We wouldn't do that with any poetry. Likewise, if an author was to write in historical narrative, his intent wasn't to suggest what might have happened. The author, rather, is saying is, this is what was said, and this is what you need to know happened. This is what it means to take God's word on his own terms and not our own. Again, God chooses to communicate in a way that he knows we can understand, and he uses various styles, not to confuse us, but to tell the story as the storyteller that he is. Therefore, sometimes the storyteller wants to give you information, and that, that, that can look like a list of names and a genealogy to support other uh, aspects of the story. Or the storyteller simply wants you to feel something uh, that, that you can't do uh, without a type of writing like poetry. Because he is the true author, because he is the storyteller of the Bible, we have a duty to take him at his word and a care, to care about the way in which he communicated that word, allowing things like genre to be a part of how the story was meant to be read and understood. And there are wonderful tools for going further with this topic. Um, just some, some suggestions. The book, How to Understand Your Bible, by T. Norton Sterrett and Richard Schultz is a great tool. Um, R.C. Sproul still, uh, still has a great book that, that um, has many great books, but still holds up. Uh, Knowing Scripture is very accessible and, and, and goes further into detail in a lot of these things. Kevin DeYoung has a more recent book called Taking God at His Word. Many, many tools for, for going further with this type of understanding about literature in the Bible. But part of thinking and using our brains to come back to this, as God wants us to do, is to take his word on his terms, not ours. And that means we pay attention to things like genre and other literary tools. You want to come up here and preach? Make a party. All right, fifthly, that tells me I'm running long. I need to hurry up. Uh, fifthly, Scripture interprets Scripture, okay? Scripture interprets Scripture. Uh, the Westminster confirms this confession of faith going on to section 9. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about true and full senses of any Scripture or text, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. Our text from the, this morning in the New Testament, 2 Peter 1, 20-21, uh, where Peter talks about how men, how men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, implies, yes, there are multiple authors uh, that, that com compiled the canon of Scripture, but there is one Holy Spirit that moved them to write these things down. And there are, there, that's a topic for another discussion, and if, if you have questions about how that, was, how, how that happened, I would love to have coffee with you or lunch and talk more about it. I'm sure our officers would as well. Um, but this implies uh, that there is unity and that there is a, a cohesiveness within this body of work. And so because we believe that, uh, we are actually able to use it to interpret itself. 
Which means that if we were to read something, right, uh, and you, 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 there's many places where you can look in Scripture and it seems to contradict itself, uh, that as we begin to understand the fuller meanings of those words and as we, 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 we pair them with other places in Scripture where it talks about these things, we use itself to interpret this, the, the text itself. And I have many examples for this, but for time we need to move on. But just suffice it to say that if you are reading Scripture and you come away with an interpretation that is way different, right, that, that, that seems to, to move you in a direction that many other places in Scripture say that this is not the way that people of, the people of God should live, then maybe you should come back to the text and revisit that portion, how Scripture keeps us together. Sixth thing and this will be our final one. The Bible must be read and studied in community. Um, this doesn't mean that you shouldn't read your Bible by yourself. It just simply means that you should not read your Bible completely and only by yourself. There, uh, this is where pastors and theologians and confessions and commentaries and the history of the church is so helpful to us. We get to read and understand what those who have gone before us have read and understood and we get to compare our understanding, which actually means that you have more reason today to trust what Scripture says because of our history and recording, to look back at what the early church believed about things and to find that we are arriving uh, to our own or to the same conclusions today. Uh, not only that, we are getting more tangible evidence of manuscripts that support Scripture as well. The external evidence is overwhelming. But every generation, and this is maybe something that didn't occur to you, uh, or maybe it occurred to you sooner than it occurred to me, every generation is given the task of doing that work, of doing the work of not just sort of assuming what the church fathers have done before is, is just what we should believe, but actually going back to the original languages, going back to the text, making sure that what the tools that we have today, that this is still what it says. And you know what we keep finding? It says the same thing, that its primary message of God's glory, redemption, faith, and life continues to, to, to be proven over and over and over. Yes, there's always going to be discussions about certain aspects of scholarship within the, the, you know, the academic community, and we need to pay attention to those things. But as we look at the community of God's people and the history of, that we have, uh, it, it suffice it to say that there is more than enough reason to trust its understanding that you can know what the Bible is about because of the years that we have of resting and, and looking at and doing our own work and comparing that with that of those who have gone before us. We sometimes uh, say this, I'll, I'll say it, uh, as we uh, move further into the realm of interpretation, we should be mindful of what is essential and what is non-negotiable, historically speaking. In other words, uh, and I could say this is where creeds are helpful, but there's a difference in disagreeing with the claim that Jesus is both God and man. Right? There's a difference in disagreeing with that claim and disagreeing that babies shouldn't be baptized. One of those is a non-negotiable to the primary message of our faith. One of those is secondary, maybe tertiary to some of you. They're not the same. And so as is often repeated uh, in essentials, right, we should, we should have unity. Which is why we can say, as we think about denominations as well, which may cause some type of uh, skepticism about Scripture, uh, that this is actually okay in some ways because where there, where there are the essentials, we have unity it's primarily in these non-essentials where we've given one another liberty uh, that we find the denominations uh, in, in the Protestant world. 
but in all things charity as Christians, as brothers and sisters. Um, I hope these six things are, are, are six that, 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 that you can begin uh, to take with you to interpret Scripture, uh, to know um, that it can be trusted. Um, I'll leave you with this final thing uh, as we, as we, as we uh, close here. Um, it is no small thing that Jesus trusted Scripture. And there are, there are a lot of places in the Gospels that we can look at where he appeals to Scripture, uh, where he, he, he says that Scripture is, is about me. Um, in one particular spot, though, and I'll give uh, Kevin DeYoung credit for pointing this out, Matthew 19, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees, and, or the Pharisees are arguing with Jesus about divorce. And in, in, in Jesus' response, he appeals to Genesis 128. Um, and in this appeal, he just re- refers to God as the author. And what Kevin Young says about this, and, and I would say the same thing, it's not something that we would, you can read it in the text, it's Matthew 19, is that Jesus believed that what Scripture said, God said, as he lived his earthly life here. And there are sort of two things that, that, that this calls me back to as we land the plane. One, uh, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's, it's good enough for me, right? And maybe that can be uh, helpful for you too. But I think I want to come back to why do you want to read the Bible? Why do you want to interpret Scripture? Why do you want to think about these things, to know these things? Do you just want facts? you just want to know things about God? Maybe you want to be accepted into a community like this that values Scripture. You just want to belong. It's all read, right? Maybe, there, maybe you know some people, and maybe this is you this morning. Uh, you just want to dabble enough in Scripture so you feel like you have the credit to go and say, you know what, I've been there, I've done that. And I can tell you all the problems with it. It's just not for me. Why do you want to interpret it? I suggest the one that the author desires, that you may interpret it, that you may read it, that you may think about it for no, no other primary reason than to know God himself. And if that is your intention, and if that is what you go to the Scriptures earnestly seeking, if that, if that is what you humbly submit yourself to, then you will find him. And the interpretation and all the tools that we have laid out for, for you know, all those things work together for that purpose. You will know him and you will know his heart. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gift of Scripture to us. While, the, while it says so many things and there, there are so many wonderful uses of it, may we be drawn back to your primary message. Your message of love. Your message of, of, I want you to know who I am. I want you to know who you are. And I want you to know me. Would we dwell upon that? Would we rest in that? Would we have that wrestle with our, um, our motives of why we might want to read or think about Scripture? And may you change our hearts to want more and more and more to read it and to digest it and to think about it so that we might know you, that we may, not, may, may know your heart and primarily know Jesus, who in so all, always 
embodies all of who you are, Father, as, as the second member of the Trinity. Would you do this in us, not for our glory or for any reason that we can think of, but other, other than your glory alone? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.